Section 9 of The Idea of Progress by J. B. Berry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5. The Progress of Knowledge, Fontenelle. Part 2. 9. Fontenelle did a good deal more than formulate the idea. He reinforced it by showing that the prospect of a steady and rapid increase of knowledge in the future was certified. The postulate of the immutability of the laws of nature which has been the indispensable basis for the advance of modern science, is fundamental with Descartes. But Descartes did not explicitly insist on it, and it was Fontenelle, perhaps more than anyone else, who made it current coin. That was a service performed by the disciple. But he seems to have been original in introducing the fruitful idea of the sciences as confederate and intimately interconnected, not forming a number of isolated domains as hitherto, but constituting a system in which the advance of one will contribute to the advance of the others. Footnote. Roger Bacon, as we saw, had a glimpse of this principle. End of footnote. He exposed with masterly ability the reciprocal relations of physics and mathematics. No man of his day had a more comprehensive view of all the sciences, though he made no original contributions to any. His curiosity was universal and as secretary of the academy he was obliged, according to his own high standard of his duty, to keep abreast of all that was being done in every branch of knowledge. That was possible then, it would be impossible now. In the famous series of obituary discourses which he delivered on savants who were members of the academy, Fontenelle probably thought that he was contributing to the realization of this ideal of solidarity, for they amounted to a chronicle of scientific progress in every department. They are free from technicalities and extraordinarily lucid, and they appealed not only to men of science, but to those of the educated public who possessed some scientific curiosity. This brings us to another important role of Fontenelle, the role of interpreter of the world of science to the world outside. It is closely related to our subject. For the popularization of science, which was to be one of the features of the nineteenth century, was in fact a condition of the success of the idea of progress. That idea could not insinuate itself into the public mind and become a living force in civilized societies until the meaning and value of science had been generally grasped and the results of scientific discovery had been more or less diffused. The achievements of physical science did more than anything else to convert the imaginations of men to the general doctrine of progress. Before the later part of the 17th century, the remarkable physical discoveries of recent date had hardly escaped beyond academic circles but an interest in these subjects began to become the fashion in the later years of Louis XIV. Science was talked in the salons. Ladies studied mechanics and anatomy. Moliere's play, Les Femmes Savantes, which appeared in 1672, is one of the first indications. In 1686, Fontenelle published his Conversations on the Plurality of Worlds, in which a savant explains the new astronomy to a lady in the park of a country house. It is the first book, at least the first that has any claim to be remembered, in the literature of popular science, and it is one of the most striking. It met with the success which it deserved. It was reprinted again and again, and it was almost immediately translated into English. The significance of the plurality of worlds is indeed much greater than that of a pioneer work in popularization and a model in the art of making technical subjects interesting. We must remember that at this time the belief that the sun revolves round the earth still prevailed, only the few knew better. The cosmic revolution, which is associated with the names of Copernicus, Kepler, and Galileo, was slow in producing its effects. It was rejected by Bacon, and the condemnation of Galileo by the Church made Descartes, 
who dreaded nothing so much as a collision with the ecclesiastical authorities, unwilling to insist on it. Milton's Raphael, in the Eighth Book of Paradise Lost, published 1667, does not venture to affirm the Copernican system. He explains it sympathetically, but leaves the question open. Footnote. Masson, Milton's Poetical Works, Volume 2, observes that Milton's life, 1608-74, to coincides with the period of the struggle between the two systems. Milton's friends, the Smectimnians, in answer to Bishop Hall's humble remonstrance, 1641, had cited the Copernican doctrine as an unquestionable instance of a supreme absurdity. Masson has some apposite remarks on the influence of the Ptolemaic system, quote, upon the thinkings and imaginations of mankind everywhere on all subjects whatsoever till about two hundred years ago. Close quote. End of footnote. Fontenelle's book was an event. It disclosed to the general public a new picture of the universe, to which men would have to accustom their imaginations. We may perhaps best conceive all that this change meant by supposing what a difference it would make to us if it were suddenly discovered that the old system which Copernicus upset was true after all, and that we had to think ourselves back into a strictly limited universe of which the earth is the center. The loss of its privileged position by our own planet, its degradation from a cosmic point of view to insignificance, the necessity of admitting the probability that there may be many other inhabited worlds, all this had consequences ranging beyond the field of astronomy. It was as if a man who dreamed that he was living in Paris or London should awake to discover that he was really in an obscure island in the Pacific Ocean, and that the Pacific Ocean was immeasurably vaster than he had imagined. The Marquise, in the plurality of worlds, reacts to the startling illumination. Quote, voilà l'univers si grand que je m'y perds. Je ne sais plus où je suis. Je ne suis plus rien. La terre est si effroyablement petite. Close quote. Such a revolution in cosmic values could not fail to exert a penetrating influence on human thought. The privileged position of the earth had been a capital feature of the whole doctrine as to the universe and man's destinies, which had been taught by the church, and it had made that doctrine more specious than it might otherwise have seemed. Though the churches could reform their teaching to meet the new situation, the fact remained that the Christian scheme sounded less plausible when the central importance of the human race was shown to be an illusion. Would man, stripped of his cosmic pretensions, and finding himself lost in the immensities of space, invent a more modest theory of his destinies, confined to his own little earth, si effroyablement petite? The eighteenth century answered this question by the theory of progress. 10. Fontenelle is one of the most representative thinkers of that period, we have no distinguishing name for it, which lies between the characteristic thinkers of the seventeenth century and the characteristic thinkers of the eighteenth. It is a period of over sixty years, beginning about 1680, for though Montesquieu and Voltaire were writing long before 1740, the great influential works of the Age of Illumination begin with the Esprit des Lois in 1748. The intellectual task of this intervening period was to turn to account the ideas provided by the philosophy of Descartes and use them as solvents of the ideas handed down from the Middle Ages. We might almost call it the Cartesian period, for though Descartes was dead, it was in these years that Cartesianism performed its task and transformed human thought. When we speak of Cartesianism, we do not mean the metaphysical system of the Master, or any of his particular views such as that of innate ideas. We mean the general principles which were to leave an abiding impression on the texture of thought. The supremacy of reason over authority, the stability of the laws of nature, rigorous standards of proof. Fontenelle was far from accepting all the views of Descartes, whom he does not scruple to criticize 
but he was a true cartesian in the sense that he was deeply imbued with these principles which generated to use an expression of his own quote, des espèces de rebelles qui conspiraient contre l'ignorance et les préjugés dominants and of all these rebels against ruling prejudices he probably did more than any single man to exhibit the consequences of the cartesian ideas and drive them home the plurality of worlds was a contribution to the task of transforming thought and abolishing ancient error but the history of oracles which appeared in the following year was more characteristic it was a free adaptation of an unreadable latin treatise by a dutchman which in Fontenelle's skilful hands becomes a vehicle for applying Cartesian solvents to theological authority. The thesis is that the Greek oracles were a sacerdotal imposture, and not, as ecclesiastical tradition said, the work of evil spirits who were stricken silent at the death of Jesus Christ. The effect was to discredit the authority of the early fathers of the Church, though the writer has the discretion to repudiate such an intention. For the publication was risky and twenty years later a jesuit father wrote a treatise to confute it and exposed the secret poison with consequences which might have been disastrous for fontenelle if he had not had powerful friends among the jesuits themselves fontenelle had none of the impetuosity of voltaire and after the publication of the history of oracles he confined his criticism of tradition to the field of science he was convinced that quote, les choses fort établies ne peuvent être attaquées que par degrés the secret poison of which fontenelle prepared this remarkable dose with a touch which reminds us of voltaire was being administered in the same cartesian period and with similar precautions by bayle like fontenelle this great skeptic the father of modern incredulity as he was called by joseph lemestre stood between the two centuries and belonged to both like fontenelle he took a gloomy view of humanity he had no faith in that goodness of human nature which was to be a characteristic dogma of the age of illumination but he was untouched by the discoveries of science he took no interest in galileo or newton and while the most important work of fontenelle was the interpretation of the positive advances of knowledge bales was entirely subversive the principle of unchangeable laws in nature is intimately connected with the growth of deism which is a note of this period the function of the deity was virtually confined to originating the machine of nature which once regulated was set beyond any further interference on his part though his existence might be necessary for its conservation a view so sharply opposed to the current belief could not have made its way as it did without a penetrating criticism of the current theology such criticism was performed by bayle his works were a school for rationalism for about seventy years he supplied to the thinkers of the eighteenth century english as well as french a magazine of subversive arguments and he helped to emancipate morality both from theology and from metaphysics this intellectual revolutionary movement which was propagated in salons as well as by books shook the doctrine of providence which bossuet had so eloquently expounded it meant the enthronement of reason cartesian reason before whose severe tribunal history as well as opinions were tried new schools of criticism were introduced new standards of proof when fontenelle observed that the existence of alexander the great could not be strictly demonstrated and was no more than highly probable it was an undesigned warning that tradition would receive short shrift at the hands of men trained in analytical cartesian methods eleven that the issue between the claims of antiquity and the modern age should have been debated independently in england and france indicates that the controversy was an inevitable incident in the liberation of the human spirit from the authority of the ancients 
Towards the end of the century, the debate in France aroused attention in England and led to a literary quarrel less important but not less acrimonious than that which raged in France. Sir William Temple's essay, Wooten's Reflections, and Swift's satire, The Battle of the Books, are the three outstanding works in the episode, which is, however, chiefly remembered on account of its connection with Bentley's masterly exposure of the fabricated letters of Phalaris. The literary debate in France, indeed, could not have failed to reverberate across the channel, for never perhaps did the literary world in England follow with more interest, or appreciate more keenly, the productions of the great French writers of the time. In describing Will's coffee-house, which was frequented by Dryden and all who pretended to be interested in polite letters, Macaulay says, quote, There was a faction for Perrault in the moderns, a faction for Boileau in the ancients, close quote. In the discussions on this subject, a remarkable Frenchman who had long lived in England as an exile, Monsieur de Saint-Evremond, must have constantly taken part. The disjointed pieces of which Saint-Evremond's writings consist are tedious and superficial, but they reveal a mind of much cultivation and considerable common sense. His judgment on Perrault's parallel is that the author, quote, has discovered the defects of the ancients better than he has made out the advantage of the moderns. His book is good and capable of curing us of abundance of errors. He was not a partisan. But his friend, Sir William Temple, excited by the French depreciations of antiquity, rushed into the lists with greater courage than discretion. Temple was ill-equipped for the controversy, though his Essay on Ancient and Modern Learning, 1690, is far from deserving the disdain of Macaulay, who describes its matter as, quote, ludicrous and contemptible to the last degree, close quote. Footnote. The only point in it which need be noted here is that the author questioned the cogency of Fontenelle's argument that the forces of nature being permanent, human ability is in all ages the same. May there not, he asks, quote, many circumstances concur to one production that do not to any other in one or many ages, close quote. Fontenelle speaks of trees. It is conceivable that various conditions and accidents, quote, may produce an oak, a fig, or a plane tree that shall deserve to be renowned in story, and shall not perhaps be paralleled in other countries or times. May not the same have happened in the production, growth, and size of wit and genius in the world, or in some parts or ages of it, and for many more circumstances that contributed towards it than what may concur to the stupendous growth of a tree or animal? End of footnote. And it must be confessed that the most useful result of the essay was the answer which it provoked from Wooten. For Wooten had a far wider range of knowledge and a more judicious mind than any of the other controversialists, with the exception of Fontenelle, and in knowledge of antiquity he was Fontenelle's superior. His inquiry stands out as the most sensible and unprejudiced contribution to the whole debate. He accepts as just the reasoning of Fontenelle, quote, as to the comparative force of the geniuses of men in the several ages of the world, and of the equal force of men's understandings absolutely considered in all times since learning first began to be cultivated amongst mankind. But this is not incompatible with the thesis that in some branches the ancients excelled all who came after them. For it is not necessary to explain such excellence by the hypothesis that there was a particular force of genius evidently discernible in former ages, but extinct long since, and that nature is now worn out and spent. There is an alternative explanation. There may have been special circumstances, quote, which might suit with those ages which did exceed ours, and with those things wherein they did exceed us, and with no other age nor thing besides. Close quote. But we must begin our inquiry by sharply distinguishing two fields of mental activity. The field of art, including poetry, oratory, architecture, painting, and statuary, 
and the field of knowledge, including mathematics, natural science, physiology, with all their dependencies. In the case of the first group, there is room for variety of opinion, but the superiority of the Greeks and Romans in poetry and literary style may be admitted without prejudice to the mental equality of the moderns, for it may be explained partly by the genius of their languages and partly by political circumstances, for example, in the case of oratory, by the practical necessity of eloquence. Footnote. This had been noted by Fontenelle in his digression. End of footnote. But as regards the other group, knowledge is not a matter of opinion or taste, and a definite judgment is possible. Wooten then proceeds to review systematically the field of science, and easily shows, with more completeness and precision than Perrault, the superiority of modern methods and the enormous strides which had been made. As to the future, Wooten expresses himself cautiously. It is not easy to say whether knowledge will advance in the next age proportionally to its advance in this. He has some fears that there may be a falling away, because ancient learning has still too great a hold over modern books, and physical and mathematical studies tend to be neglected. But he ends his reflections by the speculation that, quote, some future age, though perhaps not the next, and in a country now possibly little thought of, may do that which our great men would be glad to see done, that is to say, may raise real knowledge upon foundations laid in this age to the utmost possible perfection to which it may be brought by mortal men in this imperfect state. Close quote. The distinction on which Wooten insisted between the sciences which require ages for their development and the imaginative arts which may reach perfection in a short time had been recognized by Fontenelle, whose argument on this point differs from that of his friend Perrault. For Perrault contended that in literature and art, as well as in science, later generations can, through the advantage of time and longer experience, attain to a higher excellence than their predecessors. Fontenelle, on the other hand, held that poetry and eloquence have a restricted field and that therefore there must be a time at which they reach a point of excellence which cannot be exceeded. It was his personal opinion that eloquence and history actually reached the highest possible perfection in Cicero and Livy. But neither Fontenelle nor Wooten came into close quarters with the problem which was raised, not very clearly it is true, by Perrault. Is there development in the various species of literature and art? Do they profit and enrich themselves by the general advance of civilization? Perrault, as we have seen, throughout the suggestion that increased experience and psychological study enabled the moderns to penetrate more deeply into the recesses of the human soul, and therefore to bring to a higher perfection the treatment of the character, motives, and passions of men. This suggestion admits of being extended. In the introduction to his Revolt of Islam, Shelley, describing his own intellectual and aesthetic experiences, writes, quote, the poetry of ancient Greece and Rome, and modern Italy, and our own country, has been to me like external nature, a passion and an enjoyment. I have considered poetry in its most comprehensive sense, and have read the poets and the historians and the metaphysicians whose writings have been accessible to me, and have looked upon the beautiful and majestic scenery of the earth, as common sources of those elements which it is the province of the poet to embody and combine. And he appends a note. Quote, in this sense, there may be such a thing as perfectibility in works of fiction, notwithstanding the concession often made by the advocates of human improvement that perfectibility is a term applicable only to science. In other words, all the increases of human experience, from age to age, all the speculative adventures of the intellect, provide the artist, in each succeeding generation, with more abundant sources for aesthetic treatment. As years go on, Life, in its widest sense, offers more and more materials which it is the province of the poet to embody and combine. This is evidently true, 
and would it not seem to follow that literature is not excluded from participating in the common development of civilization one of the latest of the champions of the moderns the abbe terrasson maintained that quote, to separate the general view of the progress of the human mind in regard to natural science and in regard to belles lettres would be a fitting expedient to a man who had two souls but it is useless to him who has only one Close quote. he put the matter in too abstract a way to carry conviction but the nineteenth century was to judge that he was not entirely wrong for the question was as we shall see raised anew by madame de stal and the theory was finally to emerge that art and literature like laws and institutions are an expression of society and therefore inextricably linked with the other elements of social development a theory it may be observed which while it has discredited the habit of considering works of art in a vacuum dateless and detached as they were generally considered by critics of the seventeenth century leaves the aesthetic problem much where it was perrault's suggestion as to the enrichment of the material of the artist by new acquisitions would have served to bring literature and art into the general field of human development without compromising the distinction on which wooten and others insisted between the natural sciences and the aesthetic arts but that distinction emphatically endorsed by voltaire had the effect of excluding literature and art from the view of those who in the eighteenth century recognized progress in the other activities of man twelve it is notable that in this literary controversy the moderns even fontenelle seem curiously negligent of the import of the theory which they were propounding of the intellectual progress of man they treat it almost incidentally as part of the case for the defense not as an immensely important conclusion its bearings were more definitely realized by the abbe terrasson whom i have just named a geometer and a cartesian he took part in the controversy in its latest stage when lamotte and madame dacier were the principal antagonists the human mind he said has had its infancy and youth its maturity began in the age of augustus the barbarians arrested its course till the renaissance in the seventeenth century through the illuminating philosophy of descartes it passed beyond the stage which it had attained in the augustan age and the eighteenth century should surpass the seventeenth cartesianism is not final it has its place in a development it was made possible by previous speculations and it will be succeeded by other systems we must not pursue the analogy of humanity with an individual man and anticipate a period of old age for unlike the individual humanity being composed of all ages is always gaining instead of losing the age of maturity will last indefinitely because it is a progressive not a stationary maturity later generations will always be superior to the earlier for progress is a natural and necessary effect of the constitution of the human mind. End of section 9